Thank you for listening to the Divine Nobodies Podcast with Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobodies Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and inner standing. Welcome to our tribe. And now your hosts, Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. Thank you for tuning in. Divine Nobody's Podcast. How are you doing, Jen? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good, but I'm missing festival season. I had a tough week. I thought about all the progress that they made during the uh, Burning Man sort of renegade burn that they just had. Yeah. You know, I had a, I know a couple of coworkers that went to it, but since I started a new job, I couldn't be like, hey, I need to take off a week for renegade burn. Oh, so, so you had I some people that have been there for a while that earned the rights to go. Yeah. Yeah. There was a couple of people that actually went and said it was awesome, that it was like old school burn, you know, yeah. from I was, back in the I day. I was reading some articles about it. There was 15,000 maskless partiers and it was a little different this time. Just going over all the details, it made me miss, you know, my, my main festival, which was lighting in a bottle, something that I, I, I miss very much and had me thinking about all the great times I've had. But they had 15,000 people out there and they said it was a little different this time. Now you've actually been to, to Burning Man, I haven't. And uh, these are some of the changes, I guess they noted from uh, the experience there, which is there was no massive stages. And this actually was saw as a good thing because apparently when it's actual Burning Man, you have like ridiculous, highly technical and very advanced and fairly large stages there. Ridiculous. I mean, the loudest, biggest sound systems I've seen ever in my life anywhere. And I've traveled the world and been to many different clubs all over and Burning Man's next level. Yeah. And there's apparently not having big, massive stages led to it sparking the curiosity of people to kind of venture around and wander because apparently maybe some of these stages can be a little clickish. A lot of people come and gather around these humongous stages. And since everything was uh, a lot more kind of tied together, those massive stages, I imagine like have to be really spread out because those sound systems are huge, right? Oh yeah. I mean, Burning Man's like seven square miles. So um, the stages are like strategically placed, but you can still kind of hear what's going on at another stage. Like not clearly, it's a little muffled, but yeah. Yeah. And other people, some other things are, there was no big name DJs that people had to chase. Apparently it can be exhausting to try and catch like above and beyond or flume or slender. Uh, I can mm-hmm. imagine how difficult it is to kind of navigate around something that large, but I guess this made it easier for people because they were able to kind of embody the true Burning Man spirit, which is just exploring new things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? totally. That makes perfect sense. And then less Playa Tech, it was just more along the lines of how it used to be. I, mean, I saw a video online. They had like a live feed, which I they have during actual Burning Man. A lot of people actually took the time out to create a live feed that you could have um, participated in on YouTube. They didn't burn the man, but they had this like really awesome drone, these uh, hundreds, I imagine it's hundreds of drones all flying into the sequence of the man. Like of the they man, all yeah. Were look Super like the man. Did you cool. see that? Yeah, I did see that. I was totally blown away by that. And everybody kind of commented on the drone show how it was just awesome. There was like a mushroom that they did and a helix and some other cool stuff. I wonder how the actual people of Burning Man felt considering they went out there just on BLM land and did it all themselves. 
you know, I, I was really wondering about that too. My number one concern was the potty situation. Yeah. You know, when they were talking about Renegade Bird, I'm like, okay, so who's arranging the porta potties? Because that's a pretty big task to like take yeah. on for individuals to do. I'm thinking about being on my bike way out, you know, miles away on the playa and having to go potty. And then there's nothing out there, you know? So, and yeah, having to go all was, the way back to your camp, to your RV to go to the bathroom. That's what I was thinking about. Like I've been to other transformational festivals and there are a lot of people that have that like true Burning Man spirit of, you know, leave no trace, mm-hmm. but you oh, always yeah. get those people that maybe are new or aren't privy to that whole thing and they just leave their shit behind. Yeah. And I know that the actual Burning Man festival does a really good job of cleaning up after people. So I was wondering like if there were going to be remnants of trash. And as far as I understood, there wasn't. Everybody there did wasn't, a pretty yeah. good job. They actually had like a a whole volunteer team um, picking up trash and cleaning up. So um, that was something that I don't think was organized by um, Burning Man organization, that that was, you know, individuals that made their own cleanup crew, which is insane. So the collaboration to get Renegade Burn off the ground was pretty incredible considering how many people actually showed up for it. So my other concern was like safety because at normal Burning Man, you can't drive cars on the playa, but Renegade Burn, like anything goes. So I was like, man, people are going to have motorcycles and driving their cars on the playa and it's pitch black and you literally cannot see the person in front of you until they're like really, really close. So I was kind of concerned about that. And I also heard that there were a lot of animals there. So animals aren't allowed at Burning Man. Yeah. And people brought their dogs. So I thought yeah. that was kind of cool too. That is but, pretty cool. I, yeah, you know, it just makes me that. miss, it makes me miss my, my festival lightning in a bottle. Actually, I, I remember during 2020, uh, there were people, a lot of people, this was obviously before quarantine, a lot of people bought tickets mm-hmm. and then do lab let out this, uh, large mass email, letting people know that they aren't going to give refunds for those tickets. And there was oh, actually yeah. a couple people that filed class action lawsuits against the do lab because they couldn't give refunds back. And I was yeah. like, this is a large organization or at least it seemed like they were because, you know, they do Coachella and they imagine they make a lot of money through lighting in a bottle. But apparently all the money that they get for this festival goes right out to the deposits to pay for the following festival. So it didn't seem like they had a whole lot of overhead. Yeah. Like didn't have money to repay people that bought tickets. Oh, I know. Cause we didn't <laughs> get paid back. So. Oh, you yeah. were one of those people? Mm-hmm. I was one of those people. Cause we had an RV pass and two tickets. So. Apparently they're going to come back in 2022. I don't know if they figured out that situation, but if it does end up happening, I definitely like to attend. We can yeah. go and celebrate there, John. Yeah, for sure. And that's what they said. They said, oh, well, you know, your ticket and RV pass will just roll to next year. But then, you know, next year didn't happen either. So I don't even know if Doolab's going to be around, if they're going to be able to financially make it. The thought about that too, how this is going to impact a lot of those transformational festivals, because in comparison to places like Coachella, they're not that big. Yeah, they're not. So maybe they'll crowdfund that. I don't know. But I don't know. Good vibes out to the transformational festival community. Hopefully we'll see you guys in 2022. So thank you guys for uh, joining us. We're going to talk about something pretty deep, pretty deep today, Jen. Deep sauce, big time. Deep dish. Deep sauce. And this came up uh, through inspiration from Jen because uh, she got her hands on a book, a book that I read also too. It's books called Soul Retrieval by Sandra Ingerman. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it's a book that's it's been around for a while. It's a mixture of uh, shamanistic practices with clinical psychology. And Sandra, she has like a master's degree in counseling psychology from California Institute of Integral Studies. We're just going to go over her credentials. I'm like, it's like we're interviewing her, even though she's not here. <laughs> Yeah, she's not here. So you might as well. Um, So she's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she's a professional mental health counselor, and she's the author of more than 10 books, this being one of them. The reason why I like Sandra is because she is bridging these old, really ancient shamanistic practices in with just modern psychology. I like that too. And I really enjoyed this book. 
So thank you very much for the recommendation. Oh yeah. It was really good. I had a soul retrieval myself. We talked a little bit about that on a couple podcasts ago, but it was interesting reading other people's experiences because I wasn't sure if my experience was unique or if this was kind of, you know, how it goes. Um, But I did my soul retrieval with a practitioner because it's COVID time. So I did it over Zoom and I imagine that it's much more powerful in person. But in my experience with it, um, I was trying to cut ties with my mother. I was trying to cut cut the cord from her so I could kind of like move on and, and we could stop incarnating together because it's just hasn't been working out, right? Mm-hmm. So after my soul retrieval, when I was doing like my exhale to wake up, I literally felt some kind of uh, force leave my body. I, oh, really? I could feel it come out of my throat. Yeah. And what, it, what did that feel like? It kind of felt like a, a huge exhale. It was just, it was really bizarre, but uh, the woman who was doing my soul retrieval felt it as well. And after I exhaled, she goes, oh my gosh, did you feel that? And I was like, yes, oh my gosh, you felt that too. So it was um, a pretty intense experience and that was via Zoom. So Sandra does her um, soul retrievals in person. So she's actually there like touching the client. So I bet they're much more impactful to have have it done in person. But um, I, I had some pretty profound healing from this soul retrieval. I actually feel much better about my relationship with my mother and being able to cut that tie and kind of move on. So um, yeah. It's, and that's big for you. That's, that's big for you because you're an Aquarius, you know, and you think they get you really in touch with those deep, deep seated emotions. When you made that gasp, but it, did it feel like a nice, good, like solid sigh that made you feel really good? It literally felt like my own soul had left my body. Like I oh just goodness. released, you know, some kind of pent up energy that was, that was trapped in there. So, um, yeah. I, I, it's a very hard thing to put into words, but it was, yeah. it was pretty incredible. Yeah. And then that was something that I guess it's probably inspired you to pick up this book and read up a little bit more about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you know, something else that happened and you and I kind of talked about this offline personally, um, I just turned into a big baby and you know, I'm, I'm very thick skinned and I'm not very emotional. Like I don't have high highs and I don't have low lows. I'm always like pretty much in the middle. And um, my intention before the soul retrieval was to get more in touch with my emotions and tap into my femininity. And after that, I was crying over everything. Like everything brought me to tears. Sometimes I would just cry like for no reason and I'd just start to cry. So uh, is um, it like, was it like a, oh my God, everything's just so beautiful type of cry? No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it was like random doesn't make any sense, not correlated to anything, cry. And I'm like, what the hell am I crying? What's wrong with me? Are you one of those people that like, you know, harness your emotions for a a substantial period of time and then one day you just unload all at once? Mm -mm. No, I'm, I'm a, if you piss me off, uh, we're going to be having a conversation about it. Like right away. I'm not a, (laughs) I feel like emotions go somewhere. They have to go somewhere, whether or not they're, they're, they're pushed into your subconscious, but they have to be processed at some point. Yeah. You know, so they're in there somewhere. You just got to get access to them, you know, deep down. I exhaled some of them. I can tell you that. So, oh yeah. man, yeah. So shamanism, but this ties back to shamanism. We'll go over kind of like a brief synopsis of what that is. It's a really complex thing, but if you're in the sort of community, you've probably heard of shamanism before. It's the oldest spiritual practice known to humankind. Mm-hmm. We know from archaeological evidence that shamanism was practiced all over the world for at least forty thousand years. And if you talk to certain anthropologists, they believe that it actually dates back to over 100,000 years. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they do that, but if they can come to that calculation, it's got to be some legit shit. uh, (laughs) It must work if they're still doing it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. That's in the word shaman comes from, and I didn't know this until I actually looked it up and this is because this is a word we always use, but the word shaman comes from the Tungus tribe in Siberia 
and means one who sees in the dark. Yeah, that was actually in the book. And I was like, whoa, cool. And shamanism has been practiced in parts of Asia, Europe, Africa, Australia, Greenland. And uh, shaman is basically a man or a woman who interacts directly with the spirits to address the spiritual aspects of illness and the things like soul retrieval, kind of like what we're talking about. And I think the most familiar uh, familiarity people have with shamanism, especially nowadays, is the, the work that these shamans do in Peru when it comes to ayahuasca ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, on my list. Yeah. And you hear some of these stories, like people that have done ayahuasca and then they, they, these shamans, this is one thing that I've always found really interesting because I've, I've always really been into astral projection and uh, altered states of consciousness. But when you hear some of these reports of people that have gone to Peru and sat with shamans, it's one thing to see them in front of you, to see you off on your journey, but it's another thing to close your eyes an hour into an ayahuasca experience and open your eyes and see that shaman there with you and that shaman able to acknowledge you in that realm. It's like you're both in this alternate dimension together mm-hmm. and he knows exactly what you're going through and what you're feeling mm-hmm. in that realm. Yeah. They just, yeah, they have this cool. way of uh, being able to tap into your consciousness and assist you with navigating through these really complex areas of your spirit. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about, right? Yeah. The best place to start, we're going to we're going to go over soul retrieval. The best place to start is well, what is soul loss? So the assumption is that if we're going to retrieve a spirit, is if it's, we're going to re- retrieve certain aspects of the soul, then something must be lost. So the whole concept of soul retrieval is that when we experience something traumatic, a small piece of our soul breaks off or gets lost, more than likely stays in the moment of when you experience that trauma, right? There's a, a million examples of uh, modern uh, causes of soul loss. But um, I'm just going to run through a couple of them. So incest, rape, death of a loved one, accidents, no matter what kind of accident, war, um, illness, having a surgery even, and any type of assault uh, can cause your soul to leave your body. So um, the surgery thing kind of surprised me because, you know, especially when I think about like an elective surgery or something like that, I'm like, well, how could that, you know, cause soul loss? But um, I guess it does make sense because it is like a trauma to your body. Well, so. I mean, I don't know. I got to think of it kind of this way too, because there are areas of the book and from what I've read from soul loss is it's not necessarily a bad thing, but mm-hmm. it can be a bad thing. Right. Right. So the whole process of soul loss is that um, it's a compassionate sort of impulse from the universe that when you experience something crazy like that, it mm-hmm. will remove a certain aspect of your soul from that situation in order to prevent you from experiencing enormous amounts of pain. Yeah. And it does that as a protective mechanism. Yeah. Right? It's meant to protect you. Yeah. You know. Especially in those in those cases of um, you know like incest or rape, where you can actually leave your body, so mm-hmm. you're not act, you're not processing um, the pain that's the pain and the trauma that's happening right then. Yeah, and I, I guess the 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 one area of this that I feel like we can all relate to is when it comes to childhood, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. a childhood, we don't we don't have the in, emotional intelligence or the emotional capacity to deal with a lot of complex things that adults do. Right. And if we grow up in toxic families or have toxic parents or any sort of toxic affiliation or traumatic experience, the only one thing that we have, the saving grace that we have when we're a child, is to put it away, mm-hmm. to somehow distract ourselves from feeling through the trauma of that because we don't understand it. Right. We don't have the light of understanding there to illuminate the shadowy, dark sides of whatever it is that you're experiencing. So if a parent is particularly callous towards you, or let's just say you experience some sort of rape, you don't know what that means when you're a kid. Yeah. So as a way to protect you, there's this sort of mechanism in, in shamanism where your soul separates itself from the experience 
as a way to protect itself. And perhaps as we get older and we start to evolve and mature, we have the responsibility to go back into these places and try and recover these aspects of ourselves. And if, and if you're somebody that doesn't necessarily even believe in or follow the soul retrieval thing, they teach a lot of what we're talking about just in spirituality altogether, which is mm-hmm. when you start to awaken to the much deeper aspect of yourself, you, you start to understand what love means. You can start tracing back through your lineage and through your history and trying to figure out where you weren't loved, where you didn't show up, where you should have showed up. You, you know, you start tracing back through uh, your DNA in order to try and heal these elements of you so that you can be more whole, right? Yeah. For sure. And um, in the book, there's actually a list of questions. So I wanted to read those off um, to ask yourself to see if you have experienced soul loss. And, you know, to your point of talking about like when you're a kid and you have something traumatic happen to you and you kind of leave your body. um, One of these questions was if you have a gap in your memory after age five um, or any time that you feel like maybe you blocked out some trauma. That, that that could be a soul loss. So that was actually number um, number six on the list. So the first one is, um, do you have a hard time being present or um, do you feel like you're observing your life like in a movie from the outside? So, in clinical um, psychology, they would call that disassociation. Disassociation, yeah. Right. And, mm-hmm. it, and I like to try and tie this back to also the, the practical realm um, where we're at. How I feel like the body assists us in this process is that when we are in danger, like a noticeable amount of danger, say, in regular life, mm-hmm. we have been given the gift of the flight or fight mechanism inside of our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. So I noticed that, and this is coming from my own personal experience with trauma and other people that have experienced trauma. If you feel threatened in any way, whether or not it's physically or emotionally, that flight or fight kicks in. And that flight or fight is, okay, you need to get the fuck out of there. You need to run. Mm -hmm. So that adrenaline, that cortisol is replaced by intellectual capacity or emotional feelings. Mm -hmm. So right away, you know to flee. And physically, it makes sense if you're in danger, like in the wilderness, you're being chased by a bear. But emotionally, we do the same thing. And what happens is that emotion that perhaps we should understand as an adult is replaced by fear. And if we don't acknowledge that situation or that trauma eventually and heal it, fear permanently takes its place. So that's when people go through that post-traumatic stress, say soldiers that are in the war, they have a really difficult time talking about the trauma that they experienced because it's not, there's not understanding there. What is in its place is fear. It is their assumption of what they experienced until they do something like a soul retrieval or something like spiritual practice where they develop enough courage to feel through that and change the relationship to it from fear to understanding. So the metaphor would be from dark to light, which is darkness is just your ignorance of that situation and light is the understanding of why it is that it happened. Totally, yeah. And for PTSD, look into field trip, get some ketamine. It's very helpful. Yeah, look into field trip and get some ketamine. <laughs> so um, the second one is a, a symptom that I really resonated with and something that I've, I've pretty much lived with my entire life and is that feeling of being numb and a little apathetic so uh, that has been some feedback from my romantic partners through my life that, um, that I come across as very apathetic. And uh, I can see that. I can totally see that. And I, can, uh, I recognize that in my personality. And um, that was one of the main reasons why I went to do the soul retrieval. And I actually did a couple years of therapy um, thinking that there was something majorly wrong with me because I would have a breakup with, uh, with a boyfriend that you know, I really cared about. But uh, I would have no emotion about it. I would just be like over it. And it was and like a water faucet. I could just turn the emotion off and be done with it and move on with my life. Like never so even think of them again. So. That's so interesting. 
And yeah. I kind of make that that contrast of uh, the last episode that we had when it comes to people that don't have inner monologues and people that do, because yeah. I can't fathom not being in touch with my emotions. Oh my like gosh. if something hits me, yeah. it's like it's like touching a hot fire. Like I I feel it instantly. I'm just wondering if there's there's some element you feel emotions. Like you're not like a oh, robot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I feel emotions. I just don't hold on to them. So I'll oh, feel yeah. an emotion, and maybe I'll be like a little upset for a couple of days. And then after yeah. that, it's over. Like I don't never even think about it again. Well, I mean, so. that, you know what? That can also be attributed to uh, like a really, a really definitive knowing of self. Like, you know, your value, you're a confident person. And maybe the, the benefit of that is that you don't need to rely on any one given person for your happiness. And yeah, so you don't let true. people steal that happiness away from you. That is right? true. So this is something yeah. that codependents go through, which is that it hurts them really deeply when maybe a relationship ends because they've attached a certain part of their own happiness to that relationship. And so it hurts. So I wonder yeah. if maybe what you're going through, and you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, maybe what you're going through is just being solid in yourself and not allowing, you know, things like that to hurt you in the way that they hurt other people. Yeah. Yeah. And actually after two years of therapy, she told me there's nothing wrong with you. Everybody yeah. processes emotions in a different way. And she was like, you just have a really fast process. And so I asked my dad and my dad's the exact same way. So um, I guess that's an inherited trait because we deal with emotions exactly the same. So you're like a, you're like a warrior, Jen. Uh, in a past life, I'm sure. Well, it's a good contrast that we have though, because I pretty much feel everything. So you're the, yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, so you're the voice of reason when it comes to crazy emotions. <laughs> Yeah. So number three on the list is um, uh, suffering from chronic depression. Number four is also a symptom I have um, where you have uh, problems with your immune system where you get sick frequently. So I don't get sick frequently, but I do have an autoimmune disorder. So um, that was that was certainly on my list. Uh, my soul retrieval didn't fix that. So maybe I need another one. We'll see. Well, so, I feel like that, that, that comes as a result of unresolved trauma. And whenever we have yeah. that unresolved trauma, it manifests as fear. And so mm -hmm. if that fear is going through your body 24-7, if it happens to be a really crazy memory, that can just mm -hmm. wreak havoc on your immune system, you know? Totally. Yeah. Just go and fuck everything up. And yeah. it just sitting there, sitting there in your unconscious, just wreaking havoc on your body. I think a soul retrieval and just looking into that to heal it is probably the resolve to that. Yeah. So number five on the list was, uh, were you chronically ill as a child? And I wasn't. I don't, I don't remember that. And number six, we already talked well, you don't about- have to, You don't have to check all the boxes in order for this to- Yeah, yeah, in order for it to be beneficial. Um, no. th these are just kind of like questions to ask yourself to see if you would be a good candidate for soul retrieval. Yeah. Um, so number six, number six, we already talked about was having uh, gaps in your memory after age five. Number seven, do you have addictions like sex, drugs, gambling, booze, food, any of that stuff? I wouldn't say I have addictions, but I sure like all those things, so- <laughs> Drink the booze, you lose, Jen. <laughs> Number eight, do you fill the void um, that you have inside with external or material things? Number nine, um, have you had a hard time moving on after a divorce? I haven't been divorced, so not my problem. And number 10, um, do you suffer from multiple personality disorder? That one I thought was super interesting. When I re read that, I was like, hmm, interesting, okay. Uh, I want to hear more about how uh, a soul retrieval can help with somebody who has multiple personality multiple personality disorder. Yeah, I think that happens with the developmental stages of your life. Uh, the one thing that I'm, that I guess the one common thread that I'm, I'm hearing from you when it comes to this list is there's just a lot of resistance with all of this stuff, right? Yeah. There's a resistance to address something integral for you to address in order to heal. 
So right. what we do, and in opposed to looking into traumatic experiences, is we sort of try and assuage the pain by either running away from it, by trying to mask it with things like drugs or sex or booze, all these sort of worldly things that take our attention away from really focusing on the parts of ourselves that need to be healed. Absolutely. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make is they think that by turning away from it, somehow it's just going to go away. Um, it doesn't. And even if that's a conscious decision to say that it does, your body remembers it. You have cellular memory inside of your body. So mm -hmm. you, if you're going to integrate, especially in spirituality, your heart and your mind, both of those things really need, those, those traumatic experiences need that attention in order to, to heal that. So I'm just seeing a lot of resistance in what you're saying. So if you're somebody that is just trying to take as much time away from having to address the problem, it's only going to metastasize and get worse. Absolutely. You know what I thought was really interesting about this book too, uh, is she talked a lot about um, tribal living, how much better tribal living is for human beings. And I had never really thought about it in this way, but she was talking about as how our society grows, um, we moved away from tribes to families and then down to these isolated nuclear families and even further down to that to being like individuals. So, and living separately. So yeah. think about how much how much easier it would be to raise a child if you had a tribe to help you with it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that's the single mother effect. Being a single mom is so much harder than having a husband and, you know, your family around to help. So, yeah. you know, raising children, it, it takes the stress off of that. And it also takes the stress off your relationships because you're not dependent on your partner to provide um, everything that you need. So oh, whenever yeah. you're living in a community, you know, you're yeah. getting your needs met in other ways from so many other people. Yeah, there's all types of shit wrong with the way that we sort of move in our civilization. Obviously, those things didn't make sense. Like when you think of shamanism, because obviously the, I think these sort of teachings come from that too. Like it reminds me of that Dunbar's number that I was talking about a couple episodes back about human beings can only recollect about 150 interpersonal relationships at once. Mm -hmm. Once we get past that point, we stop developing meaningful relationships. And that speaks to tribalism because it says that 150 is still a lot of people, but in tribes, I don't know, a hundred in comparison to, you know, the 70, 20 million we have in these cities in the United States is a really big contrast. So even if you were in a tribe of 20 or to hundred people, it's still not a whole lot of people, but there's a, a deeper understanding of what the collective goal in a communal environment is in smaller tribes. And mm -hmm. I noticed from just you know, following indigenous culture and their teachings that each person in the tribe was able to contribute something. Like you had the hunter gatherers that went out and got the food. You had the mothers that, you know, uh, paid attention to different things and you had elders and everybody had a specific role. India is very much like this in a lot of ways. Um, but you're talking, you're speaking to sort of like a communal living where everybody is equal and they have shared values. And you kind of lose right. that when you're in a really large city where there's tons of people. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You totally lose that. So you I know. thought that was interesting and it's not something that I've ever thought about before. So um, when I read this in the book, I was like, you know, that makes sense. And it, it makes sense for trauma too. Like how much harder it would be to abuse a child whenever you're living in a communal living type situation and you have more people to be accountable to, you know, yeah. it's like much harder to hide things like that. It makes anyway, me think of like, interesting. think of our own families. I mean, I know we have maybe certain people in our families that we get along with more than most, but fundamentally, when we think of comfort, when we think of feeling free, um, we think of our families because our mm -hmm. families love us. And there's this sort of connection that we have with family that we don't typically have outside in nature with strangers. Right. But why does family work? You know, because ultimately at the end of the day, they're still human beings. 
And the definition that you have of them being a family member is just what separates them from maybe some stranger that you don't know. But why is it that we can't have that same sort of family dynamic that we have in our own families with other people? Yeah. Maybe that comes down to trust. Maybe that comes down to fear. They understood that in shamanism because obviously these are ind- indigenous tribes that all work together like families. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think of, of uh, was, that, was there any more on that list? Um, nope, that was it. Okay. Yeah. So I just see what it makes me think of like energy, like for me, energy is reciprocal in nature and each interaction with life represents a, almost like a cyclical distribution of energy. So when we interact with somebody in a healthy way, say we're having a conversation right now, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your attention is you're giving me attention and I'm giving you attention. There's this reciprocal understanding that there's a dialogue being shared and we're both uh, being able to extract value from it. So there's this reciprocal sort of toroidal field that exists between me and you because there's validation there. Fundamentally at the core, it's almost like us validating to each other that we both exist on this planet, on this world, and that we both understand each other. I think that's healthy communication and that's healthy distribution of energy. Now, when you're out and let's say you're in a relationship with a narcissist, the most toxic type of people, and you're pouring your energy and your love into this person, and that energy isn't being redistributed back to you, that becomes a problem. That's when you face things like soul loss, energy loss. Uh, Another person has the responsibility in a loving way to redistribute that energy back to you so that you can continue to feel whole. You lose that with somebody that's toxic because one, they don't understand love, so they can't redistribute that energy efficiently in the correct way. They can't validate your emotions because they don't know themselves. Mm -hmm. So your energy gets stuck. Yeah. It gets stuck. And that's the reason why, especially people in these like toxic relationships, they're they're in this frenzy of trying to understand what happened, where they fell short, why this person hurt them, and they're looking for validation from these toxic people that can't give them validation back. And you've known people like that, where it's like oh, five sure. years later, they're still harping on this fucking guy or this oh woman. My God. Yeah, move on. It's time to let it go. You know? And yeah. as if somehow this and this this is kind of speaks to what you're talking about. You feel like something's been taken from you. Yeah, yeah. Like and we'll get into that later from you. with the with the soul stealing. So that's a that's a thing. So we'll talk about that later whenever we get into that. But yeah. um, and when so back the to energy shamanism. loss is so substantial, this is when you need something like what you're talking about because yeah. it's so traumatic that it's almost like you can't even get there on your own. You need somebody to help you out. Yeah, hundred percent. And the one thing that's interesting about this is that the government, the system that we're a part of, is is a contributor to this as well. Maybe uh, unconsciously, we're just so used to it and desensitized to it, but it is a real problem. So uh, our governments perpetuate soul loss through how we understand modern psychology, right? You would understand this because you work at Field Trip, but when somebody has a problem, say somebody was diagnosed with depression, what do we give them? We give them SSRIs. We give them medication that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Mm -hmm. It gives you more of the resistance that you're talking about in that list, you don't quite get at it. Like you can't go and retrieve that missing aspect of yourself if you have this antidepressant that is prohibiting you from the inquiry. Absolutely. And, you know, antidepressants are, were initially intended to be like a short-term fix just to take the edge off so you could process these traumas and kind of move beyond it. But then, you know, anytime big pharma gets involved, <laughs> things end up being forever, right? Yeah. So, um, but that's a, whole it, nother, that's a whole nother podcast. And, and a big thing about SSRIs especially is that in collaboration with therapy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that in is another huge responsibility that these therapists have. And I've known a lot of people that have been in an SSRIs and their therapists suck ass. Yeah. 
Like you have to have a really good therapist that isn't jaded by her work, that really, really cares about what it is that they do. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, I know a lot of people that do antidepressants and at some point they just stop going to therapy and they just use it as a band-aid to yeah. place over the huge bullet wound that they have in their heart that's filled with trauma, you know? Yeah, and it doesn't, it doesn't change that. All it does is take the edge off the pain, you know, yeah. just to make it like manageable to move forward. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Really, and we do really this not even just with medication and people with psychological disorders. We do this with a lot of things. Like you can even see, you know, addiction to social media, addiction to food, mm-hmm. all the various ways that we in the Western world run away from our issues. You can see this as uh, another form of, of, of soul loss, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a quote that I saw on Gaia that I thought was really interesting. It says, Within situations of physical and emotional abuse, negation, and trauma, there are many experiences in life that can be too difficult to bear. Soul loss is an understandable response for spiritual woundedness and deep fragmentation of one's soul essence that would lead to an internal disassociation from natural balance. That's you know? a great, that's actually a great definition. It's very yeah. all encompassing. Yeah, we're, so- we're, we're essentially taught this fragmentation in a lot of ways, you know? And this is the reason why the shadow exists, the collective unconscious, what Carl Jung was talking about. The whole collective unconscious exists of the shadow aspects of humanity, which are the aspects of ourselves that we're not willing to address, perhaps maybe because some people don't have the awareness or they haven't had enough courage in order to dive into those places. But that whole realm of the shadow is filled with the fragments of people's spirits. Imagine how intense it would be to be a shaman and to experience all of that. I met a shaman um, actually pretty recently um, out out in Nevada, and I stopped at this like little meta- metaphysical shop and uh-huh. uh, started talking to the owner. And she's a shaman, and she had all these like beautiful drums that she sold in her shop. And I'm like, oh, this isn't, you know. She's like, oh yeah, I teach drumming and uh, and all kinds of things. I mean, she does everything there. And um, it was it was really interesting listening to her speak about drumming and what. And I asked her, I was like, well, what does it do? Like, I've never really understood the purpose of drumming and shamanism. And she was like, well, it's the, it's the monotonous beat. So that monotonous tone actually helps facilitate alpha and theta brainwaves. And in contrast to the beta waves that you experience in like ordinary reality. So, um, I didn't know that there was actual, an actual change in the brainwaves that you experience by that, like dun, 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 dun sound. Yeah. So um, I thought that was really interesting. So she said that, that that's how um, she's able to transcend into that um, shamanic state of yeah. consciousness. So it's the one thing that I noticed cool. about these shamans, for example, like if you look at a picture, like you can pull up on Vice or just on Google search and look up shaman, and you'll just see some random his, Hispanic fellow and he just looks like somebody's uncle, right? And he's yeah, got, totally. um, you know, and he just looks like a regular person. But one thing that I hear from people that have gone through ayahuasca ceremonies in Peru, the second they close their eyes and they're three sheets to the wind into like a ayahuasca experience, they open their eyes and like these shamans become like almost like gods, you know, like wow, in that yeah. realm, they're just these like futuristic sort of warriors. And there's this translation that takes place once you enter into that simulation. And from what I've noticed is sound, even though it sounds primitive on our end, say a Tibetan singing bowl or say like a native drum in the spiritual realm, in that sort of non-local dimension that they talk about in shamanism, Mm -hmm. it is like 3D surround sound frequencies that you can only really pick up in that realm. And it has this ability to translate from music into some guiding light that takes you through these dimensions. Wow. You know what I mean? 
Like you right. hear like a, the banging of a drum in a sequential sort of order, but in that realm, it means something completely different. That's mm-hmm. the reason why they have these things. Shamans have these things called Icaros. And there are these native songs that have been passed around through generations and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they sing these in these experiences. Mm-hmm. And what people gather from them is that when they experience uh, something maybe really scary in that psychedelic realm, these Icaros have the ability to almost guide you out of that experience mm-hmm. and through all these other dimensions, just with sound, with these songs. Yeah. And that's just, that's insane. That's crazy. Yeah. Super cool. Shout out to a shaman that I met in Sedona. His name is Rohelio. So if anybody's ever out in Sedona, you can look him up and he does tours and will drum for you. And um, he's just a super cool guy. So does he, um, does he uh, consume shaman ramen? <laughs> you know, I don't know if he knows about Shaman Ramen, but... Oh, that Shaman Ramen. Jen Jen has a friend that uh, started a business called Shaman Ramen and uh, gave yeah. her some samples and she uh, departed some with me. And one of them was like a Pad Thai and another one was like some other thing, but it was Cosmic like this... Cosmic coconut. Uh, yeah, that shit was good. And it had good. like uh, adaptogens in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was good. Shaman Ramen. Good. Yeah, it Shaman didn't Ramen. experience anything crazy, but you know the intention <laughs> was there. I felt the love. My immune <laughs> really system cool. probably really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think at this point we we should talk about what a soul retrieval is. I oh mean, yeah. Just yeah. More we should probably get to it. Yeah. Details. So we, we we've pretty much gathered what soul loss is. It's basically where you experience a traumatic experience, and we leave certain aspects of ourselves there. And uh, as we go throughout our lives, and we get to the point the point of awakening and awareness, there's a part of us that wants to venture back into these spaces in order in a, in, in order to retrieve these aspects of ourselves so that we can be whole. The one thing that I did want to bring up before we get into this is the reason why I I truly believe that this is a protective mechanism fundamentally is by some of the stories that I've read in near-death experiences where there have been ER doctors or people that have come back from near-death experiences and they will say that there's something that happens at the point of death where most people, when they think of death, they think of the, the most terrible way to go out, right? The reason why people fear death is because they think it's going to be this painful process. Right. They think it's going to be never-ending amounts of suffering, and nobody wants to go through that. But one thing that I've gathered from some of these near-death experiences is that Source does something where it sort of removes you from your body before you experiencing anything too crazy. So yeah. it's a compassionate sort of impulse where Spirit takes you from your body, removes you to protect you from experiencing trauma, and in as it's as it pertains to what we're talking about, it seems like this is very much the same thing. Absolutely. In my own near-death experience, um, I it was a drowning. And I remember looking up at, at the water above me and knowing that I wasn't going to make it out and just like breathing in lungs full of water. And um, it wasn't painful. It wasn't painful. I wasn't, um, I was scared, but um, I don't know. There was a sense of peace at the same time. I don't know if you experienced kind of the same thing, but... Um, I did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's such a different narrative to have, right? Mm-hmm. And it's hard for people to believe unless you've experienced it. But I'm a firm believer that your spirit can actually leave your body before your body actually stops stops living. Oh, yeah. Right? There's some, I've, I've maybe it's replaced it. or some sort of like autonomous sort of structure. Maybe it's like your animal instincts are in your body, but you can be alive in your body and in your spirit somewhere else at the same time. Uh, you see it a lot in the hospital, like uh, whenever we, we would run codes on elderly patients and um, well, really any patient and you can feel their soul leave their body. I mean, yeah. there is like an instant emptiness 
that uh, comes into the room. It's just, yeah. it's really bizarre. There's not a way to explain it, but any healthcare practitioner that has participated in running a code on a patient, um, you can tell when they die. I don't need a monitor to tell me I can feel it. Oh yeah. When I was doing the doula stuff and I was sitting with some of these patients, like, yes, you can explain it with the sort of common language. There's because it's a spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. You look at a body and you just see the warmth, the life leave them. And mm-hmm. you know, even though they're on life support that they're not there. Yeah. You know, there's this machine pumping, you know, blood or air oxygen through their body, but you know that they're not there. Yeah. You know, you can see that warmth and that light sort of leave. And that's just an interesting thing because it's not uh, typically the way that people see death. They think of it as this sort of linear thing where you're here or you're completely not. There are alternate dimensions to the spirit. All right. So what is soul retrieval, Jen? What is soul retrieval, Eric? So making making (laughs) the unconscious conscious, and it doesn't have to be too much of a woo-woo thing. We can almost Mm -hmm. just look at this as... uh, illuminating the shadow shadow aspects of ourselves that we're too afraid to look at. The shamans, the one thing that I, I, I admire about shamanism is that they've been practicing this for hundreds of years, right? Yeah. And the one thing that I gather also from it is the fact that it's relatable because this is a part of the human condition. Suffering existed in the way that it does now, even that far back, hundreds and thousands of years ago. So it's a part of nature. This seems yeah. to be worked into the fabric of our human experience. So not even just us as a civilization, if they were working on this stuff, you know, 200,000 years ago or whatever, it just shows that these are things that are worked into, I guess, the curriculum of life. Yeah. You know, we should find comfort in the fact that these are ancient rituals, you know, meaning that suffering and pain are things even spiritual people encounter enough to create a practice for it. We all go through it. And shaman, and this is another thing that we wanted to talk about. I think you mentioned this too, which is shamans believe that the spirit is non-local, that it is immersed within all dimensions of time simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And a shaman can gain access to these dimensions to assist you in targeting that trauma and actively help you to feel through it and heal it. And in, in a lot of ways, I mean, we can try and get access to a shaman, but I think fundamentally this would be almost the same as holding space. Yeah, We've all been with friends or family members that are going through a hard time and we sit by their side and they're sorting through really traumatic experiences and we're just there helping walking them through it. I mean, I think as a mm-hmm. healer, we're more familiar with this. Like if you've taken on the task of being something like a bodhisattva and you have a friend that comes to you and they come to you with, with advice, the advice that they give you in life or even through maybe a psychedelic experience would be something equivalent to what a shaman would do. Is, do you think that, would you equate what you're doing with um, field trip as kind of that? Um, very similar, actually, when you say it like that, that kind of makes sense. And it's not what I'm doing, what our therapists do. Um, our therapists really facilitate that journey and, and assist the patient, you know, through navigating that trauma. So start to finish. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, in a way they, they certainly are. There's some similarities for sure. The, the main difference with a shaman and doing a soul retrieval is the shaman is actually going to the non-ordinary levels to retrieve that soul and bring uh-huh. it back for, for, um, for the client, right? And uh, what we do, the client is actually navigating on their own and figuring uh-huh. it out on their own. So yeah. um, the three levels I thought was pretty cool, and she mentioned this in the book. I'd never heard this before. So um, the three non-ordinary levels. So the, the upper level being like that ethereal area that's really bright with crystal cities and lakes in the clouds and um, bright colors. And this is where all of the spirit animals live and um, any teachers or guides, right? Oh, that's where we, we have a home there, Jen. We're just on we vacation right now. Yeah. Yeah. 
So like the, in, in my mind, when you, when you say that, when you describe it like that, I get these like this feeling inside, like, oh man, I've like, been oh, there before. Yeah, the iridescent castles in the sky, yeah. and you see that sort of that sort of glittery, rainbow esque type of film in the air. Ah, oh, yeah. You see like Falcor from the Neverending Story and the Childlike <laughs> Empress and the Rock Man. Yeah, all the totally. all your favorite all of your all of your favorite Looney Tune characters. And um, the whole cast of Labyrinth, I think, is there too. And then also, oh, you know, um, Lily in the movie Legend. Like, they're all there. Totally. David Bowie with his tight pants and the baby. Oh, Kobe. yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole He's night. like right at the gates. He's yep. like, hey, hey still got on. those tights on too. <laughs> and then um, the, the other levels being the lower world. So that um, the lower world I thought was interesting because it sounds like Earth, right? And the way she described it was... It has caves and seas and jungles and forests, like just like it would have here. And then the middle world is actually uh, Earth as we know it, right? Like as we know it and as we see it. But it has, uh, they have the capacity to time travel in a non-ordinary way. So time doesn't matter in this middle world. And they're able to actually travel across someone's timeline. So if, a, if uh, the client experienced trauma as a, a young child, they're able to hop in the middle world timeline and go back to that, that person's childhood and be there with them to negotiate, to try to bring their soul back. So um, I thought that was really interesting in the yeah. way that they go to actually retrieve the soul. And there's a couple different methods they will try to talk to and reason with um, the soul to try to bring it back. Um, or yeah. they'll engage in some type of trickery or or offer it a gift or something like that in order to get it to agree to come back. So I yeah. thought it was pretty interesting the different ways that they would they would bring so the many, souls back. Like so many parables that we have in just uh, just modern history that makes me think of like Dante's Inferno, where this guy mm-hmm. is going through all the different levels of the underworld in order to try and rescue his wife. And the same thing with Robin Williams and What Dreams May Come. Oh, that's one of my right? favorite movies. I love You've that movie. You've seen the movie, right? Yes. So his love wife it. takes her own life. Mm-hmm. And of course, in this world, that is considered a sin, not in a negative way, but she implements herself into this lower dimension of confusion. And he tries his best. Well, he he, he takes this ferry across the river sticks. Basically, it's a whole Dante's Inferno just mm-hmm. in the movie. Right. And he goes and he finds her in this house and she's just sitting there all self-loathing, just completely depressed. And she's so confused and, and she's so taken by the chaos of her ideas about herself, about that situation that she doesn't even know that she's in her own personal hell. Yeah. And he has to spend all the time in Hades, in this dark realm, trying to convince her that she's not in it so that he can bring her back with him. Mm-hmm. And everybody kept telling him, it's like, don't go into that realm because everybody that goes there falls into despair. Yeah. You, right? You're not able to come back out. You're not and, able to come back out. Yeah. And in the book, they describe that as the land of the dead. And this was one of my favorite chapters. And her power animal um, actually gave her a cloak where she could become invisible. So yeah. she could go into the land of the dead to retrieve um, any kind of soul that that may have been stolen and taken there. So yeah. I thought that that was really, really neat whenever she was able to retrieve that soul and bring them out um, under her cloak. But that is a very advanced shamanic practice. Not every shaman has the ability or capability to go that deep into the land of the dead. That's only for shamans who have a lot of experience and their power animals actually think that they're ready to, to journey that far. Well, look at the symbolic sort of interpretation of what, what you're talking about. How does going in through a traumatic memory feel? And if you ask anybody that has experienced enormous amounts of trauma, if they were to try and put words to it, it can actually feel like going into these dark spaces. 
Yeah. It makes me think of um, uh, in the Bible, they have hell. Everybody knows what hell is, right? Mm-hmm. And in the Bible, they equate it to this place called the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley was on the outskirts of Jerusalem where they used to throw the dead bodies and all of the trash. Look at it as like the dark alleyway of a metropolitan city that had no lights, maybe transients walking around where people did drugs. They saw it as like the darkest place. In the Bible, they equated hell to the Hinnom Valley. It's easy for us to think of hell as a geographical location that exists underneath the ground in molten lava, but the Bible was created out of symbolism and metaphors. So Mm -hmm. when somebody tried to express to somebody else what trauma or fear or death felt like, they had to equate it with something that they knew. That's the reason why they equated hell to the Hinnom Valley. So when, as it pertains to what you're talking about, it does feel, if I were to go back into maybe um, an unresolved trauma that I had experienced as a child, it is difficult and it hurts and it feels like hell. Mm-hmm. It feels like going into the, these really dark, you know, deep places. So I think most people can get access to this realm. And I'm one of those people that firmly believes that spirituality can evolve with the times in the same way that we don't necessarily need an, a guru in order to practice Hindu spirituality. Mm-hmm. If you can't get a shaman, you can develop enough courage on your own to go into these places through what you're talking about, visualization, oh. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually there's a couple meditation type practices that are in the book um, that she walks you through to do this on your own, which I thought was also really helpful. So I'm going to try one. I I just finished the book a couple days ago, so I haven't had the opportunity to try it yet, but I'm going to and I'll report back. I think of all of like the really amazing things, all the, all the really amazing changes and profound changes that will go through somebody once they've had a soul retrieval, right? Because we tend to build our lives around who we are including the fragmented aspects of ourselves. So Mm -hmm. once you go into a soul retrieval and you start collecting all these missing aspects of yourself and you start becoming whole, it it would be no surprise to me that somebody would go through a dark night of the soul experience. Yeah. And that's that's pretty common after a soul retrieval to have a major change in your behaviors. I mean, that's kind of the whole point, right? You know, you want to retrieve all those lost pieces so you can feel whole again and kind of move on. So, um, yeah, especially for depression, you see people who have really suffered from depression and then they have a soul retrieval and they start to snap out of it. And then there's also those people like myself who just, you know, would burst into tears for nothing, you know, (laughs) and that went on for weeks. And I I had to call this woman and tell her, like, how do I turn this shit off? I'm tired of crying all the time (laughs) for no reason. (laughs) Yeah. And she was like, no, this is good. You need to purge. Like it's because you've had, um, had this energy built up for so long that you have it's to just let how it quickly out. we can change like that. Yeah. It's I mean, insane. I've been like, one of those people too, where it's like, you know, when you're a teenager, you swear that you're going to listen to heavy metal music for the rest of your life. Or you <laughs> totally. swear when you're in your early twenties that you're going to be a goth kid chilling in the shadows, like listening to Bauhaus and wearing black <laughs> forever. Yeah. And then Several experiences later, maybe you meet somebody different or maybe you start getting more into spirituality. You start opening these neural pathways in your brain and in your spirit and you're able to recover these missing aspects of yourself that have been remaining in the dark for a long time. And all of a sudden, almost like overnight, you make amends with that and you heal it. All of a sudden, you're listening to different music. You're dressing differently. You're eating different food. You start actually giving a shit about yourself. Mm -hmm. You start caring about the people that you associate with. You start caring about the words that you say to others. And that is the power of the, the sort of illuminating force of understanding of light, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and light, we're not talking about, I mean, 
you can look at the sort of woo-woo interpretation of light, but light at its core just means understanding. And once we have enough courage to illuminate all these dark shadows of our lives with understanding, then that's when we start to understand love because we'll understand in these shadows that we didn't do anything wrong, that we were, we were impacted by other people's negative actions. Mm-hmm. And once we start making peace, not only with that, but also understanding that hurt people hurt people and knowing that the person that hurt you was probably also suffering and hurting themselves, you can develop compassion and love. And that is the light of understanding completely taking over your life. And then you just change. You just become a different person. And that when you hurt people, hurt others, when you said that, that made me think of um, the stolen souls section. And um, this is commonly seen in um, sexual trauma, sexual abuse, incest survivors, um, things like that. So those people who are abusers typically were also abused and they are stealing the other person's soul in an attempt to gain power for their own personal use. But whenever you steal someone else's soul, that it doesn't actually work. Like you can't actually take their power. So um, you can take their soul, but it doesn't do anything for you. I, I thought that that was a, a very dark chapter in the book, but I could see how people who feel defenseless would want to steal the soul and want to take that light from the other person to, in order to feel whole. And it almost seems like, because you're talking about like, they can't really take the energy, but in our minds, we've created the illusion that they can. That they can, yeah. Right? And that's a really powerful thing to understand. We create the illusion based off of the fear that we feel that somebody else has power over us. And to understand that that's not the case, that in the end, we are already whole. Only our fears and our ideas are preventing us. Our traumas are preventing us from realizing that we're already whole. It's like a really powerful thing. It makes me think of this quote by Marian Williamson where she says, hell is filled with people too, right? I love her. And hell yeah. is such a, has such a negative connotation. But to be honest, all of us go in and out of that place every single day. We don't all even realize it. You know, it's not fire and brimstone. It's this place. Hell can basically just be equated to shadow. It is the lack of understanding. It could be ignorance. It can be ignorance of what is true. So we go through that. I think throughout our lives, every single day, we run into situations that fear that we're afraid of. Uh, Hell can feel like being lost in your thoughts, Mm -hmm. recirculating negative emotions. And we find our way out of that. That's the reason why I don't think hell is permanent because we find our way out of hell actively in the life that we live. We can find our way back to heaven by, you know, illuminating those shadows, by practicing love and keeping our light on. And so, you know, people are actively going in and out of hell all day long. And it's really a choice as to whether or not you want to be there, right? In in the stolen soul section, it, it talked about, you know, someone stealing your soul, but also about you stealing someone else's soul. And I think that I have done this before, um, unknowingly, not intentionally, of course, but having a, a breakup or a divorce that maybe wasn't mutual. And in order to keep that person in your life, you steal their soul um, to keep them around. And How do you I, do that? How do you steal their soul in, the, in those moments? Yeah, it, it, she didn't really go into how you do it, right? It's um, Most people do it um, unconsciously, right? They're, it, yeah. It's just something that, that they can't let go of and can't move on from. So um, in that way, they're still bonded and attached to that person. Well, I think it's what we were talking about earlier. Well, maybe you try and steal it by not giving them the validation or the closure that they need. Maybe, yeah. You know, Maybe that's one of the manifestations of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like playing games, you know, 
People mm-hmm. go around doing that shit all day long, you know? Oh, man, yeah. You know what it makes me think of? Like in, in astral projecting, they talk about the fourth dimension. People that venture into the astral realm, they commonly see what they call discarnate spirits. Mm-hmm. Spirits yeah. that have had bodies, spirits that have passed away, and they're just sort of wandering this intermediary realm. And a lot of what I see kind of sounds like what you're talking about. Like the, the, the beings that are there, a lot of them seem confused. Mm-hmm. A lot of them seem to be engaged in repetition, repetitive patterns for no reason. Yeah. And I've read a lot of different astral projection accounts where they run in, they walk into a, a home or a building and there's just like a woman or a guy walking back and forth, repeating something and they don't even know that they're doing it. That's how asleep they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Say it's uh, uh, somebody that died, unfortunately, and they're just wandering around this intermediary realm trying to understand what happened. And at some point, a guide comes through that dimension and assists them in trying to awaken so that they can return to the light. Because mm-hmm. it's the whole objective, I think, to the fourth dimension is like they, they want to clear a path for all these spirits that are lost there to eventually return home. Right. But there are some people that are just so lost in their thoughts and their psychosis of trauma or thoughts that they don't even realize they're there. They don't even realize that they're stuck in this hell. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it's very similar to that. And yeah. you can actually return someone's soul. And the method and the story that she provided in the book was um, a couple that was no longer together. And um, the woman realized that she had stolen the soul of her of her ex-partner. So she set an intention and blew his soul into a crystal and then gifted the crystal to him to give him his soul back. And she told him, hey, just hold on to this and um, it, hold it in your hand and um, and meditate on it. And he did. And that night he called her and was like, oh my gosh, I feel, um, I feel so complete and I, you know, have energy and, you know, he, he had physical manifestations of receiving his soul back. You know what we need to create, Jen? This could be, I had an innovative idea. We need to create a Postmates for a soul return. <laughs> yeah, for returning. What a good idea. <laughs> returning, returning bits and pieces of somebody's soul, mm-hmm. right? So it has this like GPS it. tracker, right? And you're able to track down where these uh, missing pieces of your soul are. And then you're able to sort of pinpoint that. And then you can find a driver nearby, maybe within a five or 10 mile radius that can pick it up yeah, and then deliver it back to you. Bring it on back. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like it. You'd be like sitting down on your couch and you'd be like, oh, my post, my postmates for the spirit is is almost here. They're about 10 minutes away. Oh yeah. My soul, my soul's on the way. We'll have delivery fees so that we can make, you know, we can keep it going for the cronies and then we'll, we'll make sure that when they, when they, uh, the the soul is delivered, we'll put it in a nice little bag and then we'll close it so that they know that nobody tampered with it at all. Yeah. It'll have like the little sticker on it that shows that like the 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 seal seal is broken. Yeah. Yeah. The seal (laughs) hasn't been broken. And then when you finally get it and you open it up, it's almost like John Travolta opening the suitcase of Marcel Wallace's in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And you see like the. (laughs) The, the gold illuminating against your face. You know what I mean? I love it. Yeah, I love it. What a great idea. Yeah. So what are some, there's other some other methods, I think, Jen, other than soul retrieval. Well, people people can go into this state. Mm-hmm. The list that I um, was able to discover, which was you can do breath work. Breath work can take you there. Yeah. You can use breath work as a form of soul retrieval. Absolutely. And if mantra. you don't know how to do it, visit our episode with Audra, Audra Bear, and she'll walk you through a couple exercises. Yeah, you just got to breathe. Just gotta breathe from just your breathe. from your belly, from not your not from through your, your chest. chest, not yeah. through your chest. Even though we all do it because uh, for the gram, we do it for the gram. When you're you sucking, so it much in. you know for what the I'm gram. talking about. You know what I'm talking about, Jen. All your cronies do. do that. Yeah. And then mantra and prayer. You can get there through mantra. 
You can get there through primal rhythms, beats, and sounds, which you're talking about mm-hmm. with the drums. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can get there through sound healing. This is something that I always invoke through my sound healing. You know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that do a lot of what I imagine to be soul retrieval work in a sound bath. Oh yeah. I mean, I've seen it before. There are people like wailing their arms back and forth. They're moaning really loud. They're barking. They're just doing all this crazy stuff. I'm like, oh, they're going after something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then self-hypnosis, visualization, incense and essential oil, physical and emotional catharsis, and plant medicine, of course. And the reason why we created this episode is that so you all can sign up to Field Trip, which is where Jen works. (laughs) This is a PSA for Field Trip. Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Well, this was a really fun topic and uh, highly encourage anyone that is interested in soul retrieval to get one. And um, if you're just interested in learning more and... Uh, reading some examples because Sandra provides some really beautiful and insightful examples in her book of um, different uh, different client experiences. So, highly yeah. recommend. You can and get the it book on is Amazon. Called, the book is called Soul Retrieval by Sandra Ingerman. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I it's been in my bookshelf like for a while. I really, really enjoyed it. 10 bucks on Amazon. Yeah. Great you read. know what? Totally this worth is. It. It, it's a really good book, but it's just like Bringers of the Dawn. You go into a used bookstore, you'll probably find it there. Yeah, for 50 cents. Yeah. yeah, for 50 cents. Go there first. You'll probably find it. Yeah, I like that. You know what I mean? Recycle. Be kind yeah. to the earth. And then be kind and rewind, you know? Yeah. I'm, that, I think we're on to something with the whole Postmates of the soul thing. I like it. I like you it. Know? I think it's smart. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what our delivery fee should be. Or like a kit even. Sell a kit on Amazon to return someone's soul. Did you oh, steal right? a soul? Here's a yeah. kit. It's got a crystal and a bag and you can seal it up. Sell it to them. <laughs> Yeah, like little crystal grids and like yeah. <clears throat> Palo Santos in there. Yeah. That's like, heal your shit. Yeah. Yeah. Clean and if you guys house. don't have a shaman, you know, just continue down your, continue with your practice. We're all doing a, a, some form of soul retrieval one way or another. It just involves having enough courage to look into your trauma and look into your, your shadow mm-hmm. and developing enough courage to feel through the pain. Our responsibility is to become aware, conscious, and courageous enough to venture back into these traumas once we're evolved enough to understand the significance of what we can learn from healing them. So Godspeed to you all on the journey towards self-love. And thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, actually, one update, Jen. Our contact page on our website, by the way, if anybody goes and listens to our mm-hmm. podcast on the website, is working. So if you go uh, on the divine-nobodies.com, the contact form, uh, you put in your name and your email address. You can send us a question. You can send us a request. You can ask us to put you on a, our um, news feed. We'll do all those things. That's a really great addition. And also, Excellent. if you guys have any other questions, you could reach out to us directly through uh, divinenobodiespodcast.gmail.com. And uh, also, too, like and subscribe to the YouTube page. If you go into the description of this episode that you're probably listening to on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, It'll take you to our YouTube page where you can see the video portion of these podcasts. Like and subscribe so you can keep up to date. We're putting more clips on there pretty soon. And then also follow our Instagram page just to keep in touch with all of us and feel free to send us a message. I think that's it, right? That's it. All right. Namaste, friends. Namaste. Namaste.